This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Business by the Numbers. I'm your host, Hunt Emerus, CPA with Parmels and Associates. So I was planning on doing a different topic this week, but I don't think that we can ignore what is currently going on in our banks right now. If you've not heard about this, if you live in a cave, you don't watch the news. Already, we've had three massive bank failures in the last week, with the largest and most notable being Silicon Valley Bank. So this week, I want to talk a little bit about what happened, why it happened, and why we care about it. But before we get into that, I want to have a quick word from our partners who make business by the numbers possible. Hey, did you know NapaTrax has on-site training plus six days a week support? It all starts when a local representative meets with you to learn about your business and how you run it. After all, it's your shop, so it's your choice. Let us prove to you that Trax is the single best shop management system in the business. Visit them online at NapaTrax.com. That's N-A-P-A-T-R-A-C-S dot com. So I think that it's uh, kind of ironic here that last week's episode was about looking for seemingly at the time risk-free investments by putting money into a money market or CD. By risk-free, I mean that it's not invested in a market where you have exposures to losses or should have exposures to losses, right? The money market or CD give out rates of returns on it, which generally don't really change up or down that much. The only exposure that you really have is this theoretical, hypothetical situation that we've never seen or don't see very often, which would be a bank failure. And as of a week ago, if you would have said, Hunt, that's not really risk-free, the bank could fail, I honestly would have laughed. I still laugh thinking about it because it's a ridiculous statement at that time. Now, today, it's not a jokey matter, and it's true. And for a lot of people, they're wondering right now, hey, is my money secure? Am I ever going to get this back? I am writing this or I'm doing this and recording this as of Monday, March 13th. Kind of came down to the last minute here. And no matter when you listen to this, there's going to be much more information that I'm going to talk about and probably a lot more of these questions that are answered. I actually wanted to record this this weekend, but then as this stuff started breaking, there was just not a lot of information out. And I kept on pushing it back and telling Carm, I'll get you to the episode, but I want to get more of these questions answered. And we do have some more of these questions answered as far as the government and how they've stepped in on this, but we still don't have a lot of this stuff. So I got to put the disclaimer out here. This episode is not meant to be the end all be all. This is not going to be 100% factual. There's going to be some opinions in here. And I'm not sure if we're ever going to really fully understood why this happened. But what my job is, is to kind of explain this to you in a sense that hopefully you can understand and also put in perspective of, hey, why do I care about this random bank in California that primarily was invested in VCs and startups and tech companies? It has nothing to do with me. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. It has everything to do with you and probably some of you is very close. This week, I want to talk about all of that, right? What happened here, why it happened, and why do we care about this, and how is this going to affect us in the future and possibly even right now? So let's talk about first what happened here. The big elephant in the room, especially if you're not super familiar with this story. So if you have not read anything about Silicon Valley Bank, also known as SVB, I'd probably pause this episode and go do some research and just look around and just read some articles about it. It is truly, truly... I guess it's probably unlike anything we've ever seen, I would say, as far as the speed of this. And it really caught a lot of people by surprise. Long story short on this, and seemingly out of the blue, because before this, there wasn't a whole lot of talk, is on Friday, it was announced that Silicon Valley Bank was essentially going belly up here. They said, we're out of money. We need someone else to step in. And we're essentially going to walk away from this. And we have nothing to do with this or we can't kind of sustain this any longer. Asking the Federal Reserve, asking the FDIC, asking anyone to step in and help out. But how did we get there, right? How did we go from, hey, this bank has $200 billion, right? This was one of the larger banks in our country. And to just go to $200 billion to nothing, how does that happen? Or is that actually what really did happen? The rough timeline on this obviously goes back a lot farther, right? And you can trace this back to the start of the pandemic. You can trace this on a lot of things. And this is a super, super complicated issue. But most of what we're going to talk about this week is what actually happened less than a week ago, right? All of this stuff happened seemingly overnight almost. 
The first thing was probably Monday or Tuesday of last week is that Moody's, which is a rating agency, which rates creditworthiness, right? So think about it like a report card. If you have a very good bank, very good reserves, very good investments on it, Moody's is going to say, hey, that's a very good risk or it's a not a risky investment. They're very good. Exact opposite. If Moody's was to rate something like a fringe cryptocurrency, they would not give it a very good grade because it's very, very volatile. Moody's reached out to them early last week and said, hey, we've been reviewing your financials and we're a little bit worried about it. So we're going to notify you that we're going to be downgrading your credit rating as a company whole, which is the last thing that any company wants to see, especially a bank. You don't want to get this credit downgraded. Now, on Wednesday, the financial arm of SVB came out and they publicly announced that they were going to be raising capital. Hey, we're looking that we're going to be raising, I think at that time it was $2 billion, $3 million in capital raise. So already on Wednesday, and even before this, if you start looking at some of the chatter, especially on some of these like message boards for techs and startups, there was already some weird stuff going on there that looking back on it were probably early warning signs of it. But essentially on Wednesday, when they sent out this message that they're raising capital, people really started to get concerned. My bank is going out saying that they're raising money. Shouldn't I be going to a bank to get money, not the other way around? So already people were a little bit concerned. Then on also on March 8th, or Wednesday of last week, they sold approximately $21 billion of government securities or treasury bills with an overall accounting loss of $2 billion. Okay, and we'll go back to why that actually happened there. But again, another thing that wasn't very good. Now, at the end of Wednesday, after the markets actually closed, Moody's publicly announced that they were going to downgrade the credit rating of SVB as well. Obviously, between them coming out and saying that they're raising money, them showing a $2 billion loss on paper, and then Moody's downgrading the credit worthiness, people started to get really nervous. VC companies, different startup investors, obviously the startups and the tech companies themselves started to get really nervous. Hey, what is going on with this bank? Why don't we start to move this money out? Why don't we start to transfer this to other accounts? Let's put this in Chase. Let's put this in Wells Fargo. And on Thursday, $42 billion, that's billion with a B, were withdrawn from the bank or attempted to withdraw from the bank. Now, keep in mind here of how much $42 billion. The total deposits of all Silicon Valley Bank totaled to be about $200 billion. So that's 20% of the bank's deposits were tried to withdraw in one day. Think about this one. It doesn't work exactly like this, but go to your bank and try to withdraw $20,000 in cash you're not going to be able to. I almost guarantee it. Unless you bank with someone that has a ton of deposits, most banks just don't keep that much cash because they're not that liquid and there's not a whole lot of cash deposits coming in there. A bank itself is no different, right? When you go put your money in a checking account, a savings account, whatever it is, do you think that the bank actually has all of that money earmarked for you ready to go? They do to a certain degree. They have that money. They're not allowed to go and spend it. They have to have reserves. Does not mean that they can instantly turn around and give you that money. So already the stock was taking a hit. Already they were trying to get all this money out of the bank. And by Friday morning, SVB threw in the towel. They said, we're done. We're in big trouble. We're insolvent. We can't pay out all this money that people want to take out. And we need to take over. So this is kind of how we got to here, right? So March 8th, to March 10th. This is Wednesday to Friday is how fast it went from, hey, everything is good to this stock is absolutely worthless. We're walking away from this and we have no idea what happened. This is probably the scariest thing about the entire thing is how we went from, hey, everything is good. It's a bank. It's regular day-to-day life to one week later, it's gone. It doesn't exist. Silicon Valley Bank is actually back, I guess. We'll talk about this later. The government stepped in there and they have a new CEO and they are assuring customers that they're back, ready to serve them. Now, who would ever go back to this bank is beyond me. Really, the only thing a bank can't do is go under and they did. So I think you would have to be crazy to go back there. Now, could you be a bank that actually fails twice in a row? Probably not. But the fact that they've come out today and said, hey, everything is good here. We're here to take care of you. I thought was a little bit comical and really not a comical type situation. So what else is going on here or what else happened? So this started really a chain of events that is still ongoing. And like I talked about before, I'm talking about this on Monday, March 13th. 
The chain of event is not something that we will truly understand probably for days, weeks, months. This is still going on and we still don't know who all was affected by this and to what degree. We know some of the players that were directly infected by this, right? There was a ton of tech companies that had their money in there. There was a ton of startups that had their money in there. They had a massive, massive market share there. But also, this is starting a ripple effect of other banks. And we're starting to find out that, hey, Silicon Valley Bank already failed. Some other people were not soon after that. And there's also a lot of banks out there that might be in a similar situation that are still trying to make things work. So the direct ripple effect of this was really three banks or four, if you want to count this other one, that have already failed in the last week. So we had Silicon Valley Bank, which is like I said, $200 billion under assets, second largest bank failure in the history of our country. The only one bigger than this was Washington Mutual, which happened to happen in 2008. We all remember what happened in 2008, but this is why this is so important, right? This is the second largest bank to fail in the history of the country. We also had Signature Bank based out of New York. They failed a couple of days after Silicon Valley Bank did. Silvergate, which isn't getting much news, it was a crypto bank in California. That one failed, I believe it was today, maybe even yesterday on it. And now the last one on here, why I say it's three that have officially failed in the last week, there's another bank called First Republic Bank, which at the time of publishing this is not completely dead. Their stock is crippled. They're in big trouble on it. But the government has stepped in and said, hey, we are going to guarantee all these depositors to hopefully stop it from completely failing altogether. So right now, you know, Silicon Valley Bank closed on Friday. We've already had three, possibly four. And this is what we know now. I know that there's going to be more out. And I imagine by the time you're listening to this episode, there's going to be more. I hope not, but I just have a feeling. Now, Hunt, has this happened before? I've never heard of something of a bank failure. Why have I never heard of this before? And this seems really scary. Long and short is bank failures do happen. Now, much more of the time, they're smaller banks, right? Or almost always, they're smaller banks and usually very, very small banks, which probably don't even hit the news cycle. And to kind of put that into perspective, in 2022, there were actually four bank failures and you probably didn't hear about them. Think about some of these smaller banks, right? You could have a bank that literally just has one location on it and think about what their client concentration is. And if they have one bad investment, it could jeopardize the entire thing. Now, does that mean that no one got their money back or people lost a bunch of money? No. And in most cases, when banks fail, the government or FDIC steps in there and guarantees this or kind of backstops this so that people aren't left without money. Now, they go through some pretty scary times. Can't say that they didn't lose money in other ways of opportunities and stuff like that. But that $50,000 is in their checking account. While might have been a little bit slower to get it out, they did get most of their money back. Now, like I talked about before, it has happened before to this scale and even bigger back in 2008. Now, 2008 was a bank called Washington Mutual. And a lot of times, you know, people and I was personally didn't even remember the name of the bank. I remember that something happened there. But 2008 was such a financial train wreck on it that a bank failing almost slipped under the radar. And really back in 2008, When Washington Mutual failed back in 2008, it wasn't like what we're seeing now with Silicon Valley Bank. It's similar as far as size, but not because of causation. So in 2008, when Washington Mutual failed, a lot of people are comparing that to what we're seeing here with Silicon Valley Bank, which is really probably not a true comparison. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but Silicon Valley Bank could be the cause of uh, something that is actually already ongoing, not the after effect of, you know, specific events, kind of like what happened to Washington Mutual. But to kind of understand of a little bit about this and why this happened, we have to talk a little bit of the backstory here. So the backstory of this is it needs to be understood on, on how banks deposit your money that you deposit with them. So if you go in and you open up a bank account, if you put money into a money market, CD, checking account, savings account, whatever it is, the bank just doesn't have their own checking account that they put your money into. They invest that, especially if it's an interest bearing account, they need to invest that. They're not giving you your own interest. They're leveraging other people's interest to pay you. Now, in deposits accounts, and by deposit accounts, I mean, you know, something that is essentially like a checking account, a couple different things, but it's not an investment. People aren't expecting to lose any money on that, and they readily want to take this in and out. 
Banks invest this in what they feel is very low risk securities. And in Silicon Valley's bank example, they put most of this into federal treasury bills. And in their case, they put into long term treasury bills. Long-term treasury bills are locked in for a certain amount of time, and if you leave them in there for that time, you get a pretty decent return on your investment. Now, back when they did this, it was probably 2, 3, 4% locking this in for a long amount of time, which is not too bad back then. Now, the downside to putting it into long-term treasury bills is if you take money out of this early, you don't get your interest and you pay a penalty by doing so. So if you're putting in these long-term securities for what we would consider short-term deposits, you better be pretty confident on your interest rates not moving. Now, when I say interest rates, everyone knows what the interest rates are today. Interest rates are much, much, much higher today than they are back then. Now, the good news for banks is interest rates are high today, which means that they can charge higher interest for the loans. The downside of this is they actually have to pay larger interest for deposit accounts. And so what happened here is this bank was saying, all right, great. All of these tech companies, all of these startups are putting all this money in here. We're going to do a set it and forget it type situation. And we're going to put this into long-term treasury bills, which are going to pay us, let's call it 3% interest. Great investment. We have everything secured. All is good. Rates, you know, the federal funds rates at zero. Mortgages are less than 3%. We are still way ahead of the curve. We're perfect here. Now, what happened, and we've been talking about this on this podcast at nauseum, is 18 months ago, the Fed started raising interest rates. And as the Fed started raising interest rates, Silicon Valley Bank's investments started to look worse and worse. Hey, short-term treasury bills are paying 6, 7, 8, even 9%. We're locked in here at 3% for the next, whatever, five years, 10 years. I'm not sure how long they had this stuff locked up. This is getting a little bit worrisome. Maybe the Fed will not raise their rates anymore. Maybe they'll start lowering the interest rates and we'll be okay here. Now, they did not, and we know that they are continuing to raise their rates. And so Silicon Valley was in a very, very, very hard spot. So what they had to do is at some point they knew that they had to cut their losses. Hey, the rates are not going to go down. They're not going to stop going up here. We just need to get out of this treasury bills, recapitalize and put these in shorter term investments. that are going to give us better return. And they've probably known about this for a good bit of time. I mean, these interest rates is not something that just happened overnight like their bank failure did. This was months and months and months where they probably knew that they were going to eat this stuff. And at some point, they were going to have to admit that they'd lost, on paper, $2 billion. And if you remember, what happened is last week or last Wednesday, they finally announced that they had an accounting loss of $1.8 billion. Does that mean that they actually lost $1.8 billion last week in the form of cash? No, but they had assets on their balance sheet that were worth, quote unquote, 23 billion that they sold for 21 billion. Why were they on there for 23 billion? Because if they would have held those treasury bills to their full extent, they would have been worth 23 billion. But just like anything else, if you want to cash out early, you're going to take a discount, which is exactly what happened. Now, a couple other things on why this happened. We have to understand Silicon Valley Bank's clientele and their client concentration. So client concentration is a very worrisome thing for banks, but Silicon Valley Bank is an example of not practicing what they preach. If you were to go to a bank and they were to look through your sales and they would realize for your shop that one customer or one industry made up 50% of your overall sales, a bank would probably not lend you money because they would say, well, hey, if that one person leaves, you're in huge trouble and you probably go under. Now, Silicon Valley Bank was almost exclusively the lender to VC firms, tech companies, startups, and the like. And actually, at one point, and I'm not sure if this was a true statistic, but I saw in a couple different places, they handle about 50% of the VC and tech market as far as how much money they had under management and what all the banks had. I mean, they were the go-to guys, hence the name Silicon Valley Bank, for VC and startup. Now, what's been going on in that space over the last 12 months? It's been a bloodbath, right? There's been a lot of layoffs, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, 
All these companies are laying off people because they've seen revenues start to decrease. They've also seen Wall Street get a little bit more specific and a little bit more aggressive on how you're valuating these companies. Hey guys, we're not just going to keep on giving out these silly valuations. You actually have to prove that you're profitable and they aren't profitable and they're burning through money. So what we saw here is kind of a double whammy. This Silicon Valley Bank was already in trouble because of these bad investments. Now, they had a couple other investments that we're not even going to talk about. Essentially, they more or less gambled away a lot of people's money here and made a lot of very, very, very dumb moves that now innocent people are really paying the price for. But we don't need to kind of get into that whole detail here. But what we saw is deposits start to fall. These tech companies were having a harder time raising funding. People weren't as readily to lend money because of the interest rates and also because of the assumed risks in this space. So startups weren't getting as funded as they were before. So not only was Silicon Valley Bank having a hard time with cash flow because some of these investment, how much in deposits they were expecting to get have been significantly decreasing. Let's face it, your shop management system is the single most important tool in your shop, period. You need NapaTrax because it integrates with all the major players, including Napa ProLink, PartsTech, OE RepairLink, Epicor, TireConnect, Mitchell One ProDemand, and more. NapaTrax has leading edge tools and technology that your shop needs right now. Unlike the other guys, we'll be there after your installation with the best training and support in the business. Your training includes a learning management system that is tailored to each role in your company. Simply put, Trax was designed and built for shop owners just like you. It all starts when a local representative meets with you to learn about your business to help optimize your shop's workflow, efficiency, and profitability. For over 30 years, NapaTrax has made selecting the right shop management system easy by offering the best, most comprehensive SMS in the industry. After all, it's your shop, so it's your choice. Visit us on the web at napatrax.com. That's N-A-P-A-T-R-A-C-S dot com. Now, another thing that is not specific to Silicon Valley Bank here that we also have to remember as well, too, is starting in 2020 and continuing to 2021, we saw a lot of money getting pumped into the economy. And this money wasn't getting pumped into the economy. It had to go somewhere. So obviously it was going into banks. Why? Paycheck Protection Program, right? PPP. All that money had to go somewhere. That was going into banks. EIDL, where was that going? That was going into banks. There was a lot of other grants and low interest rate loans that were going into these banks that were giving them a ton and ton of ton of deposits. Now, as we've been seeing, a lot of these companies have been hurting. So have they been increasing and maintaining those deposits? Now, a lot of them have been posting losses since 2020. And so all that money has been burning, burning, burning. So we have interest rates climbing. We have deposits decreasing, which created a perfect storm here. Now, as of the information I can get here, and this is extremely hard to get, but as of the balance sheet of Silicon Valley Bank as a whole, it did not look too bad, right? If you were to say, hey, if they were to liquidate all of their assets, they would have enough money to cover 98, 99% of their deposits. Well, then why did they go under? And this is something that I think is a huge takeaway for you running a business because a bank even screwed this up. Just because you went under does not mean that you were worthless, right? Doesn't mean that you didn't have assets, but it means that they didn't have cash. Because like I said before, yeah, they had enough money to cover all of those deposits, but those assets were not liquid. Great example that I would give you is let's say that you have a $2 million bill come up. Call it for something short term. So let's just say your parts vendor came up to you and said, hey, you owe me $2 million. That's like essentially saying, well, hey, my building is worth $2 million, but I obviously can't pay you today. Napa's going to say, hey, you have five days to pay this before we cut you off. I can't sell my building in five days, so I guess you're going to have to cut me off. Kind of like what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Hey, people are trying to take money out. Stock prices are getting crippled here. We're in a cash flow situation. Yeah, we have enough assets, but we need more time. And that's essentially what they did here. They're saying, hey, take over, figure out who gets what. It needs to be liquidated, but we don't have cash to service this debt right now. So as I alluded to before, there is definitely some criminal activity going on here. And there's definitely a lot of other weird things that happen. Some people are comparing this to Enron because of the financial reporting side of this. A lot of that goes back to what I talked about before with these treasury bills that were on the balance sheet. 
And everyone kind of knew that it was going to be an inflated number. Everyone knew they weren't going to ride that out to the end. But because our county rules, they were allowed to report it that way. And that's why that $1.8 billion came as such a shock to the market on Wednesday. There was a couple other investments that they did. And like I said before, their concentration was just too high. But because of laws and changes that happened actually after the last financial crisis, they don't weren't kind of held to those standards. And there wasn't a whole lot of government intervention coming in there to say, hey, we're not going to insure you unless you diversify a little bit. They were kind of more left left on their own hands off type atmosphere of, hey, if you're paying your people, if you're protecting your deposits, then, hey, who are we to involve? And generally, I am an advocate for, you know, the government not intervening in where they need to be. But in situations like this, where the government is the stopgap or the government is also more or less the insurance agent, there has to be more accountability here. And what we see time and time and time again with these financial crises, with this fraud, is that there's people that are gambling away other people's money with impunity. I think that there's going to be fall guys here. I think that they're going to throw people under the bus. What this is, is a much larger thing with a lot more people involved. And honestly, it's the normal people that are going to be the ones footing the bill for this, either in the long term with taxes or whatever it is, or people that are losing their money and kind of these bad actors here that are probably just going to go on and work at another bank. You know, maybe they'll get six months and some kind of cushy federal prison, but there's probably not going to be a whole lot of stuff to pay for that. Now, you can kind of hear my tone of my voice because I'm frustrated by this. You know, the more and more you read about this, the more and more you see that this was not an innocent mistake, right? And we always talk about fiscal responsibility. I talk about fiscal responsibility with you guys, with your own personal finances, with your business. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were criticizing the federal government for their lack of fiscal responsibility here and their overspending. And now we have the banks themselves that can't even handle money. And so it's really all in all a mess here. And if you look even deeper into this, if you look at kind of the CEO, chief counsel level people at Silicon Valley Bank, up until as recently as last week, they were selling off shares of Silicon Valley Bank, right? And this is only what we've been reported on this. But there was internal players at Silicon Valley Bank that obviously knew things were not good. Why else, if you really believed in your company, would you be selling shares of your business right before it seemingly went worthless on this? Now, there will be issues on that one. Insider trading is something that's pretty easy to prove, and I'm sure that people will go to jail for this. But there was so much mismanagement, which I guess hindsight is 2020, or really only something like this actually opens the door to, for us to look at stuff like this. But this was not something that happened last week. You know, if you really talk to people here, people in the know, this was probably not a surprise to most people very close to Silicon Valley Bank. Maybe it was a surprise that it went this fast towards the end there, but the writing was on the wall. If you actually go back and look at this stuff, especially the internal data that they would have had, this was not something that they did not see coming. And I have to mention this other one. Now, I was going to put this in here and I did some research before on this. It turns out it wasn't true, but the chief administrative officer of not Silicon Valley Bank, but Silicon Valley Bank Investments, used to be the CEO of Lehman Brothers, who you might remember from 2007. Lehman Brothers went under. Now, it turns out that this guy supposedly had nothing to do with Lehman Brothers back in 2007. He was gone the year before and supposedly had nothing to do with Silicon Valley Bank because he worked for this investment arm of it, which is separate. But just like a lot of these things where there's smoke, there's fire, it's usually the same characters that kind of hop around to different things. And another great example of that is Barney Frank was on the board of directors of Signature Bank, one of the other banks that fail. Who is Barney Frank? Now, some of you guys from the Northeast or any of you guys that kind of follow politics recognize him as a longtime politician. And specifically, I think he was Senator House of Representative for Massachusetts served as a ranking member of the House Financial Services Committee um, and was a key player in the 2007-2008 financial crisis. Not as in key player as he was a part of it, but was the government side of it to kind of be the intermediary and hopefully stop this stuff going forward. So Barney Frank is where the Dodd-Frank Act comes from. What is the Dodd-Frank Act? 
More or less, it was a bill that was passed after the 2008 financial crisis to safeguard consumers from bank mismanagement and financial risk that bank and investment arms are doing. This was a guy that his whole life goal was to create the Dodd-Frank Act to prevent investors from you know, being defrauded or losing their money was also on the board of directors of a bank that just failed last week. Obviously, everyone's going to say, hey, you know, Barney Frank had nothing to do with this, which I probably wouldn't put this on his shoulders. He didn't make Signature Bank fall. But I also just think it's kind of comical, right? The guy that wrote the law to try and protect people can't even protect the own bank from failing. So how can we trust the you know, larger banking system as a whole? It's just a really, really bizarre situation. Now, if you're saying to yourself, "Hun, I don't really even understand why this happened. I kind of heard what you said, but I don't understand why. Neither do I. This is something where if you look at it on surface, that there's just a lot of holes to this. This is very, very basic finance stuff. And I'm not sure if this was mismanagement. I'm not sure if this was just oversight, if this was laziness. But there's just too much stuff here for people with this much money to miss and not see coming. There had to be some early warning signs. There had to be a bigger thing going on there. But we just don't know. As of right now, Silicon Valley Bank has come out and essentially said, hey, we were too concentrated in that market. We made bad investments in treasury bills, and now we're under. Now, as we go on here, and I don't expect us to learn this anytime soon, we're going to figure out there's more, right? I already talked about before, there were financial irregularities. I'm guessing that they were actually in a very, very bad spot months and months ago. And we're just now figuring out when people actually tried to pull that money out. Just like a house of cards, right? House of cards could look really good. All it takes is you taking one card out and the entire thing fell. Essentially, what we saw is probably this house of cards of being built and was extremely shaky for the last year or so. And finally this week, when all those people tried to pull out that money, it was the final thing and it all came crumbling down. So that's why it happened. That's what happened on it. But why do we care? What's going on? I don't care, Hunt. I'm not in the tech space. I don't have any of my money at Silicon Valley Bank. I got a local regional bank that handles my money and this would never happen to them. But this is exactly why we do care. Because of two things, right? The two big things that you might be hearing about a lot is bank runs and FDIC. So before we get into FDIC and what that is, I want to talk about bank runs. So bank runs in the sense that we're talking about it now is the fear that your money is not safe unless you're in a bigger, more secured, larger capitalized bank. And we're already seeing this now. People in regional banks, obviously people that are in banks that are kind of on the verge of going under, people are transferring their money out of these smaller banks, out of these mid-sized banks into the big boys. Now, why are they doing that? Because they're looking at this and they're saying, hey, I have First Bank of Midwest Trust. They're small. If something happens to them, I don't have any sort of protections here. I want to get mine into the Wells Fargo. I want to get mine into the Chase. Now, this kind of goes hand in hand with the FDIC. Why would we be less secure in a smaller bank versus more secured at a bigger bank? And it has nothing to do with FDIC. So FDIC is insurance that essentially guarantees deposits up to $250,000 per bank. So if you have 100 grand in a checking account, 150 in a savings account, you are protected for that full 250. Now, if you have 250 in a checking account and a million dollars in a savings account, technically you're only protected up to 250. That million dollars that you have over and above it is unsecured or unsecured in a format that the federally is not going to officially insure that. Meaning if it goes under, they are not responsible to make you whole. Now, they probably will, but they don't technically have to. Now, take a look at something like Silicon Valley Bank. I believe it was Roku. If it wasn't Roku, it was one of these other tech companies had $500 million in SVB. That means that they had 250000 that was secured and almost $500 million less 250000 that was unsecured. Think about how crazy that is that they officially only insure $250,000. I mean, what is $250,000 for a company like Roku or a company like Twitter or a company like Facebook? Think about the kind of payroll that these companies have. And $250,000 is not per account, per bank. Because I've seen some people saying, well, hey, this is why you diversify. This is why you spread your money around. Yeah, if you have 500 grand, you just got to find two different banks. How many banks do you have to find if you have $500 million? It's just not possible. So let's go back to the bank runs and say, well, Hunt, if it's FDIC insured, that doesn't matter if it's a small bank or a large bank, it's the same $250,000. 
I agree 100%. But you got to look at the overall size of these banks. 50% of all of the government or all of the nation's deposits or all the banking system are made up of four banks, right? So the largest four banks in the United States are JP Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo. Now, underneath those, there was a bunch of other smaller banks and holdings and stuff like that. But those are the big four, right? This is where people are going to. And what the government does not want to happen is they don't want to lose that smaller community regional banking. Any of you guys that have tried to go get a bank with Bank of America or Chase knows that they don't want to talk to you. You're a small business. You're not enough to worry about. JP Morgan is worth or has $3.3 trillion. Do you think that they care about your $200,000 line of credit? No. And they're almost brutally honest with you that they don't care. There's a huge need for these small local regional banks and mid-sized banks. But people feel like that they're going to be more secure in something like J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan has so much money. It's, again, kind of scary to say this, but the too big to fail mentality. How can something that big fails? If J.P. Morgan fails, then everything else is going to fail because that is the largest, the best one out there. And there is some truth to this, right? J.P. Morgan has so many assets in so many different facets that they're extremely diversified. Essentially meaning if J.P. Morgan fails, it means that everything else is burning down around us, right? So if J.P. Morgan were to fail, it's like saying, hey, you know what? My house burned down. But if you look around, the entire world is already scored. So, hey, even if your house did survive, nothing else is there. It's the same example with these big banks. They're so big that if they do fail, it honestly doesn't even matter at that point because everything else is crumbling around. What good is that even there to be alive? Now, what a lot of people wanted to happen is when Silicon Valley Bank came out on Friday and said, hey, we don't know what's going on here. We need you to take over. What a lot of people wanted the government to do is they wanted to step in there and say, hey, don't worry about this. All your deposits are safe. What actually happened is the exact opposite. They said, hey, guys, sorry, all of your deposits. We don't know what's going to happen. Half of tech companies or they had half of the tech companies money. That means last week people didn't have payroll. People couldn't take any money out. Deals got stopped. There is a laundry list of things that came to an immediate halt and already started a ripple effect. Now, since then, actually Sunday night, the government came out and the Treasury came out and said, hey, don't worry. Even though this was above the FDIC insurance level, all depositors will be taken care of. Now, I can already hear people saying this, and I've already seen people argue this. Why are we bailing this out, right? Why are we bailing out the, you know, radical Silicon Valley investments? This is not a taxpayer issue. And they are bailing it out. They are backstopping this. But like I said before, it truly shouldn't cost the government any money. The assets are there. The money is there. They're just in longer term things that they need to liquidate. It's going to take some time. So yes, in the short term, they are going to spend some money. In the long term, they should be getting this money back. And in a lot of cases, when the government has served as a backstop for these, they've actually ended up making a profit on it. What happened is they waited and they waited too long, which might seem crazy because it was only 48 hours, but it was already too late. The ripple effect has already started. People have already started running out of smaller banks. People have already started going to the big ones. There has already been tech companies that have already started to fail. There's ancillary companies to tech companies that have already started to fail. My, I was just talking, my wife was down in Texas and was talking to one of our good friends and her brother-in-law works for a startup or does businesses with startup. And they were already starting to feel a ripple effect because a lot of their clients were startup tech companies and they could not pay his bills because they didn't have any access to their money. How are you going to wire someone money? How are you going to pay a vendor for their bill if you don't have access to your checking account? Right. And this is what we're already seeing here with these ripple effects. It's not just Roku. It's Roku, the employees of Roku, the vendors that Roku does business with. Right. It's not just Silicon Valley Bank. It's other banks that were lending money to and from Silicon Valley Bank. And so it's only been three days, right, since this has failed. So this is still the early stage of the ripples. And these are people that are essentially reporting, hey, I've been affected. How many people do you think out there right now have been affected and are trying to scramble and trying to make this okay before they have to come out to the public and say, hey, we thought we were going to make it through. We thought we weren't as affected as we were, but you know what? We have been. Also, look at what is going to happen to the longer term you know, market as a whole for startup and tech companies. They controlled so much of the market share that it's left a huge vacuum. And honestly, a lot of these other banks just don't have the risk appetite to invest in that. 
right? It's scary. It's volatile. There's high risk, but also high reward. And not only on the business side, are we going to see a lot harder time for these startups to get financing and ongoing financing going forward? It was also the bank of choice for a lot of startup employees. How do you go get a personal mortgage if you're a startup company? If you go to Wells Fargo and say, hey, I need to get a mortgage for a million dollar house because, you know, in San Francisco, it probably buys you a pretty crappy one bedroom apartment. But how do you go to Wells Fargo when you have no reportable income because you're the founder of a startup? They're not going to give you any money, right? Silicon Valley Bank was giving people money to this. And I don't think that that was one of their bad investments because they understood that industry. They understood the ins and outs of it. And they said, hey, we're going to take a flyer on you. Maybe you have to pledge some stock. Maybe there's alternative ways that we can do this. But they were willing to work with that industry. Now Silicon Valley Bank is gone. And especially for the near future, I think that a lot of other banks are going to be extremely, extremely leery to even touch that market at all. So lastly on here, we got to talk a little bit about FDIC and what it is and kind of what a lot of people want to change on here. So FDIC, like I talked about, often heard about, often talked about, but what is it? So like we said before, it's $250,000 per bank that is guaranteed by the federal government, meaning that if something happens, you're going to get guaranteed. Now, a lot of people are saying, why is it so low? It actually was even lower. Up until 2008 financial crisis, it was only $100,000. Now, just like in 2008, I don't think that there's been major reported histories where that FDIC was exceeded and people were actually hung out to dry. In most cases, the government has stepped in and said, hey, even though this is technically above the FDIC insurance level, we're going to make sure that this doesn't fail because like we talked about, the ripple effects of that bank failing actually cost the government and the economy much more money than what seemingly looks like of just going in there and backstopping this. Now, on a personal level, $250,000 might make sense for most people. But like we talked about before, on the business aspect of this, $250,000 is just extremely low. And one of the big things on here that I was just talking about with one of my friends this weekend is a lot of people don't get that risk, right? Savings account, a checking account, it's not looked at the risk of, hey, I got more than 250 in there. You know what? This is a risky investment. And a lot of people, myself included, look at, hey, putting in money in a bank is risk-free, right? Of course, nothing is going to happen to my money. And so to have people come and say, well, hey, you know what? That's the risk that you get by putting more money than that into a bank is just probably, you know, a bit of an oversimplification, right? No one kind of knew the risk that they were assuming because there really shouldn't have been a risk here. You know, this was not something that was just innocent, was just like, hey, times, you know, times are tough, things happen. No, this was mismanagement here. This was not something that any of these depositors did wrong, right? This is not something where you can vilify Silicon Valley for anything that's going on. This was just them putting their bank account or putting their money into a bank. And unfortunately, they were the victims of mismanagement by higher ups and by, you know, executives in this bank. Now, going forward, there's been a lot of talk that they're going to raise the FDIC limit. Even if it's something where they're going to still step in and help these people, they need to overall strengthen the support behind these small and mid-sized banks. Because if the public concerns are not dealt with, if people don't feel like using these local small mid-sized banks are safe, then they're going to go away. And I'm really, really concerned that we're already going to see this stuff this week. Because like we talked about before, when we went into the timeline of SVB or really any of these banks, there's been warning signs, there's been issues. But what happens when these collapse? It's not that the overall assets become you know, significantly worth less. It's cash demands. It's people pulling money out of it too quickly and they can't support it. If you can't support the cash flow, you know, imagine if you went to the ATM and you said, hey, I'm going to take 400 bucks out. And the bank says, all we have is 200 or we don't have any money. It's going to cause massive panic. That's exactly what we're seeing on a larger scale. So if the consumer, the general public is already concerned about this, is already taking more money out of these small and mid-sized banks, then inevitably, I think we're going to see more and more of these banks fail. Now, the government has come out with a couple of different ideas. Like I said, they've already came out and they said, hey, Signature Bank, we're going to guarantee this. No one's going to lose any money. Silvergate, you're not going to lose any money. Silicon Valley Bank, you're not going to lose any money here. Now, to what end, right? And also, perception versus reality are two different things. It's going to be very hard to calm down the individual consumer to say, hey, no, keep your money with that mid-sized bank. Don't move it over to the big guys. 
Now, on the other side of it, you know, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo could not be happier. One of their bigger competitors is going out of business. And also, just like we've seen in the past, when these banks fold, they actually can come in behind the scenes and make out like a pretty good profit on this because they can come buy these assets at a discount. Hey, this is a liquidation sale. You're not going to get full market value, but we'll be buyers at this price. And so what we see here is these big guys just licking their chops and saying, hey, you know what? We're not going to step in here. We're not going to like make these smaller and mid-sized banks' lives any any easier. We would love nothing more than to get rid of all those and just have us owning everything. But that's not good for us as the individual consumers. That's not good for business market. It is not good for the economy in general, right? Anyone that's dealt with these larger banks know the upsides, knows the downsides to it. The last thing that we need in the banking world is more consolidation. And that is the biggest thing here. That is the biggest risk is it's not just a risk for you know one bank. It's not a risk for this bank that's on this watch list. It's kind of local community, regional banking as a whole is the biggest exposure that we have here soon. Now, I wanted to kind of quickly talk about, I mentioned before about Washington Mutual back in 2008. And why we care about this kind of goes back to what we saw then. So Washington Mutual was a very similar situation if you look at the timeline. You made some bad investments, tried to sell, stock prices started to go down, and eventually threw up their hands. Now, why it's different than now is that they were kind of on the tail end of the financial crisis. So the mortgage-backed security crisis of you know people packaging up these bad securities or bad mortgages and selling them securities burned a lot of people and Washington Mutual being one of them. And Washington Mutual still to this day, the largest bank failure that we've ever seen in US history. Now they were actually the effect of these mortgage-backed securities because they were invested in a lot of these. Obviously those investments went south or went to zero on this. They had a liquidity event and they went under. Now they were not the cause of the financial crisis. They were kind of the collateral damage here. Now, what happened with Washington Mutual? No one lost any money. All the depositors got paid back. Federal government stepped in. And also, like I mentioned before, JP Morgan came in and bought them for a pretty sweet price there once the dust had settled and they figured out what exactly they wanted to buy. Now, flash forward to today. Silicon Valley Bank is not kind of the aftershocks of a larger financial event if you want to look at it that way. In some ways it is, but probably in a bit more of a roundabout way, right? Silicon Valley Bank is the after effects of a larger event that we've seen over the last three years, right? Larger event because of the things that happened during COVID, the response to COVID on it. And then also more or less exactly what the government wanted to happen. The government has been trying to slow down the economy. The government has been consistently increasing and raising rates. And I'm not sure if they will ever come out and admit this, but the Federal Reserve, they know. They're smart. They have to have known that, hey, raising rates is going to put some of our banks at risk. Now, did they necessarily want to see one fail? I don't think so. They were trying to slow down the economy and you have to slow down the lending arm of that in order to slow down the economy. They had to understand that affecting the lending arm of the overall economy is obviously going to affect banks. Now, did they go overboard on this? I think that they probably would tend to argue that they did. Now, some of them might not be that upset to see this. What is the quickest way to slow down the economy? An absolute free fall, which is what everyone was trying to avoid. But what might be happening here? What I mean by cause and effect is where is this on the timeline of what we're seeing in our financial picture? If we're lucky here, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and maybe a couple others that we see might be the tail end of the after effects of the you know, global pandemic and the financial uh, impacts of the global pandemic. That would probably be best case scenario if, hey, this was kind of the icing on the cake of all the mismanagement and all of the crazy financial moves going on there. Now, worst case scenario is this is just the start. Most financial crises, most stock market crashes were triggered by one event. Sometimes it was very clear, hey, this was it. Sometimes you look back and say, hey, this was the domino that fell that started it all. Because the worst case scenario is this is the start of a very, very bad and a very steep downturn of small and mid-sized banks, right? Are these three or four that we see right now the end-all be-all or is just this the start? Because this ripple effect is still going. We don't know if this is a tidal wave going about to wipe out everything or if this was really just a warning and we're going to get away easy. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know. I know personally I'm a little bit concerned about it. 
I shouldn't say a little bit concerned. I think I'm a lot concerned. I don't know. I think in today's environment or today's news cycle, you just hear the craziest thing that you would never expect to happen, right? It's like, hey, we started out 2023 with all this great information. Oh, and by the way, we had a massive bank failure. I mean, I think that a bit of all of us are a little bit jaded because every single day it just seems that the craziest, most unfortunate thing that you would never imagine to happen has happened. But here we are. But what should you be doing about it? Should you be running for the hill? Should you be yanking all of your money out of your bank? I don't think so, right? If you have a lot of money all put into one bank, it can't hurt to pull it. It can't hurt to kind of move it and kind of spread your interest around. Now, I feel guilty even saying that one because just like I said, what happened? Why did this all all start? Because people got nervous and people start pulling it out. So if you're having that same idea about that small bank, your neighbor might be his neighbor, the other business down the street, and could be also the you know ripple on that smaller level of that small local bank that you have. We have to be cautious here. Obviously, you got to be worried about yourself. Who are you to say, you know what, I'm going to be loyal to this bank and lose some money. Got to do what's going to make you sleep at night. You got to do what's going to protect you, your company and the people around you. Now, the FDIC has about $110 billion, $120 billion in there. If this really goes as south as what it could go, then it doesn't matter what bank you have it in there. It could be major concerns. I think that's extremely, extremely, extremely low chance. I think probably what we'll see here is a couple other banks go under. Obviously, the stock market is going to be affected by this. And this could be the hard landing that everyone was kind of concerned about. Fed's raising interest to try and slow it down. This could have been the last domino that they pushed that brings it back down to reality. We just don't know. So hopefully I answered some of your questions about Silicon Valley Bank. If nothing else, you get to hear me ramble a little bit and get my theories out there. I hope I got you interested a little bit on this and maybe, you know, answered a couple questions. But really, if you're interested in this stuff, there's so much information about this. Just got to be a little bit careful on what you read. But I also say dig into this, right? There is a couple really good Twitter threads that people have been talking about this of kind of the backstory. Because if you read some of these articles, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, wherever you read this, they're going to put out there the kind of information that we know now. If you kind of look at these other sources, you can see kind of the chatter that happened before. Hey, you know what? There are people that raised concerns about this. There were people that were questioning the validity of these financials months and months ago that kind of got squashed. And also there's been some talk about some other banks. Hey, do you know what First Republic was showing on their balance sheet before their stock plummeted? They were showing these same signs that these other banks that have been very close and tight lipped about their current position. Are those banks next or are those banks going to be able to get through? We don't know. So hopefully you enjoyed this. As always, please share this with friends. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, please shoot me an email at podcast at Thanks again for listening on the Aftermarket Radio Network. You can find all shows on aftermarketradionetwork.com and on your favorite podcast listening app. So thanks again for joining me on Business by the Numbers. Stay safe out there and I will talk to you all next week. You've been listening to Business by the Numbers with Hunt Demarest on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Hunt on your favorite podcast listening app. Let him know what you'd like him to cover. His email is in the show notes. Hunt is all for advancing the aftermarket.